the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. It was an eventful weekend on the escalating tensions between Iran and the United States. President Trump on Friday making uh, the case to the American people uh, for the decision he made, the basis for it. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. So that was a point of contention, and it uh, continues to be one into this week. Suggestion by Democrats on the Hill and their handmaidens in the D.C. press corps that uh, there was not an imminent threat and that the evidence of an imminent threat is flimsy, even though we know that uh, this is one of the leading terrorist generals of the last 20 years. Again, uh, according to the State Department, responsible for the deaths of north of 600 U.S. soldiers over the last decade in Iraq, decade plus, 15 years, in addition to thousands of Iraqi civilians and officers. Uh, Mike Pompeo was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, and he was peppered with the question of imminent threat and What's the what was the imminent threat? Provide as much information as you can. And here's how he responded. There's things we simply cannot make public about what it is we knew at the time and what, in fact, we know today about the continuing activity. Uh, I think General Milley got it right when he said we would have been culpably negligent had we not gone after Soleimani when we had the opportunity. He was actively engaged in plotting against American interests. Uh, we need to look no further than what he had personally done over the days before that, where an American was killed on December 27th. Uh, there's no surprise. There's plenty of public evidence about the bad behavior of Qasem Soleimani. He was a designated terrorist, and we did the right thing. And he went on to say he has not heard Pompeo any criticism from senior congressional leaders who've actually been briefed on the intelligence. And there's a reason for that. I think any reasonable person who saw the intelligence that the senior American leaders uh, had in their possession would have come to the same conclusion that President Trump and our leadership team did about the fact that there would have been more risk to America, more risk through inaction than there was through the action that we took. I think it I think it's very clear. I think it's very plain. We'll do everything we can to share this information with the American people. But I think the American people understand, too, there's certain things you just can't you can't put out in public. You got to you got to protect Americans who are out collecting the intelligence. Yeah, well, that makes some sense as well. Uh, President Trump uh, said something else important on Friday that Pompeo elaborated on on Sunday. Uh, President Trump explaining uh, or declaring, really, that this strike against Soleimani 
was actually a event to de-escalate violence between the two countries. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. The color that Pompeo provides, uh, provided on Wallace, is the background. What did the Trump administration inherit with respect to Iran? And then what has transpired? Remember where we came in. In 2015, the Obama-Biden administration essentially handed power to the Iranian leadership and acted as a quasi-ally of theirs by underwriting them, underwriting the very militias that killed Americans. Those resources, the money that they had to build out those forces throughout the Shia Crescent was provided to them by the nuclear deal. We allowed Europeans to go do business there. We provided them $150 billion, pallets of cash. All of these things are the very challenge that the Trump administration has had to correct. The strategy is working. We're going to stay the course, and we will protect and defend the American people at every step, Chris. But aren't you escalating? Aren't you escalating, Secretary Pompeo, President Trump, by deploying 3,500 troops to Kuwait, the Marines that were sent in to defend the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, the 82nd Airborne that was sent in as well? Aren't you escalating, at least in the short term, rather than de-escalating? And isn't that a violation of the commitment President Trump made as a candidate and numerous times as president to end the quote-unquote endless wars that America has been engaged in, particularly in the Middle East. Pompeo responded thusly. Endless wars are the direct result of weakness, and President Trump will never let that happen. We're going to get it right. We're going to get the force posture right. We're going to get our facilities as hardened as we can possibly get them to defend against what Iran may potentially do. But make no mistake, America's mission is to have our footprint in the Middle East reduced while still keeping America safe, safe from uh, rogue regimes like the Islamic Republic of Iran and from terrorist activity broadly throughout the region. So, so is it fair to say that while the big strategy is to pull the U.S. out of endless wars, at least in the short term, that could be more of a commitment? The Obama administration created enormous risk to the American people in Iran. This administration is working to reduce that risk. And something else this administration is working to do, and this goes to the argument that this is a de-escalating move, de-escalating move, not just with Iran, but in the region. Uh, General Petraeus struck upon it on Face the Nation over the weekend, where he uh, described what America had lost, and what he thinks the president is trying to regain vis-a-vis Iran. What has happened here, I think, uh, is frankly that we lost the element of deterrence, uh, the component of deterrence that was seen as American will. Our, our drone, $130 million drone, was shot down, did nothing significant in response. Five percent of the world's oil production taken out of uh, operation. Numerous attacks on shipping and then attacks on our forces, ultimately, of course, killing an American and wounding four of our soldiers. So ultimately, the the president appears to have decided that it was necessary to take an action to shore up deterrence Mm -hmm. to show that we were not going to accept this. The importance of deterrence, the importance of deterrence. Did we? Well, President Trump clearly learned something from the Reagan era. The left, of course, hasn't. They would. uh, bemoan President Trump, President Reagan, excuse me, referring to the Soviet Union as the evil empire, right? That was provocative. That was going to result in escalation. That was going to result in nuclear war. That was going to result in end days. And fast forward 35 years, and aren't you getting the same hysterics from the left today? World War III, we're going to reinstitute the draft. This is uh, escalating tensions. This is throwing a stick of dynamite in a tinderbox. 
Is it? Or is it establishing something on the order of the mad paradigm that punctuated the Reagan years? Mutually assured destruction. Deterrence. Deterrence. Know where the line is. And since you're unclear about where the line is, Mr. Adversary, let me make sure to clear that up for you. That seems to be what President Trump has done here. And again, the importance of taking out Soleimani. Petraeus put not too fine a point on it. I mean, it's impossible to overstate the significance of the attack that takes out Qasem Soleimani and the number two militia leader uh, in Iraq as well, who also never dared to set foot in Iraq during the surge after we missed him and he escaped. So this is bigger than bin Laden. It's bigger than Baghdadi. This is the the equivalent in U.S. terms of the CIA director, CENTCOM commander, JSOC commander, and presidential envoy for the region for Iran, in the most powerful figure in Iran for the solidification of the Shia crescent uh, and also the operational commander of the uh, actions that they were pursuing. Bigger than taking up al-Baghdadi, bigger than taking up bin Laden. And when Obama uh, took out bin Laden, we celebrated that. And Obama ran his reelection campaign on bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. And why the pushback on taking out al-Baghdadi and certainly taking out Soleimani? In point of fact, Petraeus explained that as a CIA director and as the lead with, uh, with the surge in Iraq, he just didn't have the opportunity that Soleimani has presented himself uh, well, the, uh, the Soleimani had presented the administration because of his increased profile in the region, got a little bit arrogant and pride goeth before you're a stain on the road, as happened to Soleimani, taking selfies on the front and so on and so forth. Uh, those things that the left is saying, and by the way, just as an aside, came together as a nation, say good for the president, President Obama, taking out bin Laden. What are we doing today? You have the D.C. press corps amplifying this uh, uh, Potemkin funeral slash rally for the the terrorist general that got wiped out. Essentially amplifying the agitprop of the lead state sponsor of terror in the world. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. And their arguments about assassination and illegality and their apocalyptic predictions about this, as with everything else Trump-related, are just without merit. This is the Dan Proctor. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, Trey Gowdy, former congressman from South Carolina, of course, now uh, advisor to the president, not part of his impeachment legal team, but an advisor on the outside nonetheless, had some interesting comments about uh, impeachment proceedings, if and when they ever occur, on Fox the other day, saying that uh, for Democrats, impeachment isn't really about removing 
the president from office. They know they can't do that. It's about something else. Even if President Trump wins in 2020, if he doesn't have the Senate, he's essentially a neutered president. He Mm. can't get his cabinet through and he can't get judges through and he couldn't get a Supreme Court they can see through. So I've always thought this was much more about the Senate than it is removing him from office because that ain't going to happen. In other words, uh, this is about middling Republican incumbent senators up for reelection in centrist center left states. Think Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, those types, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, perhaps. That's the real play here. So even if we can't put up a nominee that can defeat Trump in 2020 against the backdrop of a good economy, we can end his presidency by controlling both chambers. Uh, Gowdy also had this to say about uh, the impeachment proceeding and essentially suggesting that the Senate, Senate Republicans, should vote their shares just as soon as possible. If the vote were today, the president would win. So my advice to him is go with the defense team you got now, Cipollone, Radcliffe, Pam Bondi, Jay Sekulow, and then get to the vote as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Don't eject any surprises or witnesses that you don't know what they're going to say. It's just not good in in, in a trial for there to be a lot of surprises. For more on this topic and uh, that growing economy I mentioned, we're pleased to be joined by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, who is now the uh, incoming president of Young America's Foundation. Governor Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be So uh, what about uh, what Trey Gowdy had to say about the real play for Democrats on the Hill is not to remove Trump from office. It's to try and middle some uh, senators, Republican senators in swing states, get control of the Senate back and use that as a hedge against a second Trump term. Oh, I think I think he's exactly on the mark on that. And remember, this is the Democrats in Congress, the House and the Senate are all about power. You know, this is not about anything other than that. There's no higher calling. This is about raw power. And for them, they look at this field, and I think they're right. They, they see Joe Biden fading. They see Bernie Sanders surging. And they, this is a guy who can't beat the president head to head. And so I think it makes a lot of sense in the states you mentioned. I'd throw in Iowa and Alaska, Arizona as well. Uh, but they need to pick up just a few of those states and hold Alabama, which won't be easy, particularly with this impeachment vote. But I think it's all about raw power in Washington. And that's unfortunate. I think you do it as quick as possible because the American people, not, not just Republicans or conservatives, but I think increasingly independents have had it with this whole impeachment process. And you point out that this is nonsense, dismiss it and move on to things that matter. You know, I, I if President Trump uh, will beat uh, any of the avowed socialists, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or those sort of parroting some of their lines these days, these days, including Joe Biden, who recently said what Bernie said, which is he'd consider putting fossil fuel company executives in prison for being fossil fuel companies executives. I mean, it, it's sort of remarkable. Does that include his son? At Burisma? Yeah, it's a good question. I, nobody uh, pushed that follow-up, but I'm sure it will come at a town hall in the not-too-distant future. Uh, he also, by the way, a recent town hall, uh, said, yeah, you know, the, the, so he was challenged on Obamacare and he said, yeah, no, that was a problem. Uh, we said you could keep your doctor, but we couldn't. And uh, but, but you couldn't. And there was a lot of confusion about Obamacare. I mean, that's very different than he said for eight years as Obama's vice president. So this crack up that's going on, if it's going on to the benefit of Trump, why couldn't candidates for Senate and Congress and on down the ballot across the country make the same arguments against their opponents that Trump will be making against his. Oh, I think it's exactly right. I think you peg them uh, to the nominee. I think that becomes a lot easier when it's clear whether it's Bernie or Warren or Mayor Pete or or Biden, for that matter, any of them. And you can understand why Barack Obama, President, former President Obama, was so 
reported at least, was was encouraging Joe Biden not to run because for his legacy, there couldn't be a worse guy to carry the torch uh, than the guy who was his vice president for eight years. I mean, he, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the fact of the matter is if you're worried about Obamacare and the failure that it has become, it only gets worse when Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and others have their government take over the healthcare system. And now 180 million of us who have private health insurance are out in the cold and we're stuck with the government running it even worse than the things are run right now. Now, your former colleague, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, had a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the other day talking about how Republicans can win on health care, that just being opposed to the government takeover of the health insurance and, by extension, health care in America isn't enough. Republicans have to talk about this, have to engage, have to have a plan, have to learn the lessons of not having one from the midterm elections in 2018. And he talks about going after drug prices while preserving innovation, market-oriented mechanism to protect patients from surprise costs, pursuing price transparency requirements for drug manufacturers and hospitals and the like. Do you agree with him that Republicans need to be proactive and have their own vision for health insurance and health care? Well, and it has to go back when, when, when the left, when the far left, which is the predominance of Democrats, running for president as well as most in Congress, when they talk about current situation versus things like government-run health care, they ignore the fact that we don't have a free market system today. We have a very bureaucratic system. It would only get more bureaucratic and worse if the government took it over entirely, but big chunks of it. Uh, Medicare, Medicaid drives a lot of what happens even in the so-called private market right now. Free it up. Give people more flexibility, get the market drive a bigger share. I often have said for years that I know more about my cell phone plan, and I think that's true with most Americans, than we know about our health plan. Uh, I can tell you when my kids were young that if I didn't have unlimited texting, I'd, I would have been in the poorhouse. So I knew the plan I needed for my family based upon how much they use their phone and texting and so forth. Most Americans don't know a whole lot about what the true health care costs are. We had a better understanding, more transparency. We could hold people accountable. We could actually drive prices down. That's what happens with phones and everything else that's truly in the private market. Healthcare is one of those things that really isn't right now. It would only get worse if the Democrats had their way and had government take it over entirely. Is that one of the reasons, though, as well, that uh, President Trump and Senate Republicans should want to get this trial uh, done and over with as quickly as possible so they can lead the return back to issues that actually matter in people's lives in places like Wisconsin. hundred percent. And that's why the, you know, the trend had been earlier in, in this past year, in 2019, the president was either tied or behind in a number of the in-state polls in Wisconsin, which is obviously one of those key states, if not the key state. During the impeachment, he actually started to catch up and surpass the top four uh, supposed Democrat contenders. And I believe it's because not only did it awaken Republican-leading voters who got ticked off, much like they did years ago when I was involved with the recall election here, but but more importantly, yeah. similar to the recall, independent independents who said to the people who ran for Congress in 2018, hey, we'll give you a shot. We just want to get things done. A lot of those candidates who won in Republican-leading districts for Congress said, yeah, I'm going to put the country ahead of party. And then they spent the last year and a half focused on the party's agenda for impeachment. We get back to getting things done and and say, hey, they're the party of impeachment. They're the party that wants to impede progress. Republicans and the president, we're the ones that want to get things done on these issues. Lower taxes, better economy, true health care decisions that, that treat you not like a statistic or a number, but like a, an actual person who has feelings and understandings and is unique. Those are the sorts of things people want to hear health, about health care. And 
those are the sort of things people want to hear about the economy. He is former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, the incoming president of the Young America's Foundation, which does great work on college campuses, uh, getting conservative speakers on college campuses to expand the parameters of conversation, which is no small thing. Scott Walker, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. My pleasure. Have a great day. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Tucker Carlson on his Fox News program recently took out after the uh, severance package for Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg, uh, essentially suggesting it's unfair and it speaks to a problem with uh, greed. Uh, Tucker Carlson talking about the Chamber of Commerce libertarianism that is undermining the Republican Party and, by extension, the Republic. But it's actually worse than that. It's dangerous for our country. Why? Well, because when normal people see their lives getting worse, while failures like Dennis Mullenberg get rich beyond description, many, not surprisingly, conclude that our system is rotten and not worth keeping. And the polls show that's happening right now. Attitudes are changing fast. Thanks to stories like this one, Americans are warming, shockingly, to socialism. Six months from now, a socialist could be the Democratic nominee for president. In a few years, this could easily be a socialist country. What would that look like? Well, of course, it would be a disaster. Socialism doesn't work. It never has worked, especially not in sprawling, diverse countries like this one. Under a socialist regime, hundreds of millions of Americans would see their lives get dramatically worse, while demagogic morons like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would become vastly more powerful. That's socialism. You think America is stratified and unequal now? Wait till we get a socialist system. It will be so much worse. That's coming, by the way, and at high speed. Why? Because mindless Chamber of Commerce libertarianism has allowed greed and stupidity to flourish in corporate boardrooms. And unless we rein that in immediately, right now, we're going to lose the system that made this country great. It's always a bit concerning to me when uh, erstwhile conservatives like Tucker Carlson start sounding like uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, as he did earlier this year when he touted Elizabeth Warren's economic program to some extent. Or they start sounding like uh, men of the left, leftist elites like Bill Gates, who in a blog post reflecting on 2019 uh, lamented his $110 billion net worth, saying it shows the economy is not fair. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Joseph Sternberg. He's a columnist and editorial board member at The Wall Street Journal and author of the book, The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joe, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on. So what about this? So we've had a speech from Marco Rubio uh, the end of last year, Catholic University, talking about the need for a quote-unquote common good capitalism. Uh, we've got Tucker Carlson lamenting Chamber of Commerce libertarianism. And uh, some uh, conservatives, Republican office holders, seeming to embrace the sort of populist industrial policy, mercantilist policy, one might argue, that uh, has punctuated the Trump administration. Uh, Yes, I mean, I think that that is absolutely what's going on among parts of the Republican Party right now. And I think it's because they're all trying to answer the question of what is actually going to come after Trump. I think there's this recognition that uh, President Trump himself uh, is really a unique uh, political figure, I mean, to put it 
mildly. Um, you know, it isn't really clear that there is a coherent, uh, you know, what you might call, quote unquote, Trumpist economic program. And so now I think that you have figures like Tucker Carlson, politicians like Marco Rubio trying to backfill uh, sort of an ideology or some kind of worked out program to uh, what they think Trumpism is really about so that they have something that they can march into uh, the 2024 election or beyond with. Now, I mean, you can talk a lot about the problems that they are already encountering doing that, um, but I think that it's clearly uh, what's going on uh, within the, the Republican Party right now. It, it seems to me, though, there's a bit of confusion. Um, there's a, a lack of distinction between rent-seeking and uh, those who just are very successful because they built a better widget, built a better mousetrap. The, the, the lines seem to be blurred there. I mean, Boeing is a huge recipient of corporate welfare via the XM Bank, which real conservatives like me want to eliminate. And some of these populist conservatives like those in Congress don't. Uh, absolutely. I mean, what I find fascinating, and I was reflecting on this again as I was listening to the uh, clip from, from Tucker Carlson's show that, that you started the segment with, if you actually look at the policies, the complaints that they have uh, about the status quo right now, or the kind of policies that they would favor uh, to get beyond whatever it is that they're unhappy about today, uh, you can't actually distinguish between those ideas and the kind of quote-unquote socialism on the left that they're really unhappy about. I mean, the only difference that I can tell uh, between a lot of Tucker Carlson's economic programs, such as it is, uh, and the sort of thing that you hear from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Congress is that in Tucker's version, Tucker and people like Tucker Carlson would be in charge of it instead of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the left. Um, and so, you know, that isn't really much of an ideological or a governing per, you know, distinction at all. I think that it's just yeah. an attempt to put a different set of personalities uh, behind some of these same policies. And they're absolutely right that it doesn't work when the left is doing it. So I'm not sure why they think it's going to work any better if the right tries to do it. Joe, I want to talk trade. Uh, we got a break right quick, but I want to come back with Joe Sternberg from The Wall Street Journal and talk a little bit about trade policy on The Dan Prof Show. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking to Joseph Sternberg, who's a columnist and editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking about uh, Tucker Carlson complaining about the severance package for ousted Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg after he was fired for the Boeing Max 8 catastrophe. Uh, and and a little bit about in this in context with what's happening in, the, in some of the Republican Party, some of the Republican ranks, Marco Rubio in particular. Marco Rubio's formulation uh, in his speech at Catholic University explaining what common good capitalism is essentially suggested, well, he asked this question, uh, are markets here to serve us or are we here to serve markets? And uh, Rubio, of course, is uh, uh, suggesting that the markets are here to serve us, so we shouldn't be ideologically free market. And I thought that was a bit of a straw man that he erected in describing his uh, his vision for uh, f- free markets in a in a free society basically said, you know, markets are just people exchanging goods and services, just regular people. It's they're not abstractions. And the idea that uh, markets serve us or we serve markets, as you were saying, Joe, before we broke, 
Well, who determines that? Is Marco Rubio going to determine what serves me, or uh, am I going to determine what serves my family? That seems to be a question he glosses over. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a big part of the problem that I have with this uh, effort uh, that is going on right now uh, among a lot of conservatives uh, is that there's, you know, they're almost conceding too much ground in terms of the diagnosis of what's gone wrong here. So, I mean, certainly what you're going to hear from politicians on the left is that the, all of the, the problems in the economy trace back in some way to the market, the market, the market, and the solution to this is the government, the government, the government. Whereas I think that the real value that um, you know, conservative politicians can add is to say, well, hang on a second, I mean, we still have a lot of problems with uh, you know, the way the government interacts with the economy right now. The, the government attempts in the past to steer the market have created a lot of the things that create so much discomfort uh, for people today. Uh, and, you know, if you could properly diagnose that, you can start, a, you know, having a conversation about how to fix that. And I think that actually, you know, a lot of the kind of intervention that, um, you know, people like Tucker Carlson or Marco Rubio are proposing in the economy are various versions of things that people have tried in the past, and they didn't work. Um, so it's it's holding out this false prospect of a, of a solution there because uh, you're starting with the wrong diagnosis of the problem. Well, uh, and historian Amity Schley suggests uh, Republicans lost credibility making the free market argument when so many of them joined in to bail out huge banks and huge companies during the Great Recession. I, I, I think that there is an awful lot uh, to say for that argument. I think that the uh, reality is that both parties have been involved for a couple generations in efforts to try to use the power of the government to steer the market in one direction or another. Uh, sometimes it's been in ways that Republicans said that we liked, you know, with a lot of efforts in the early 2000s under the Bush administration to uh, prop up or uh, you know, support more home ownership, even for people who couldn't afford homes. And we saw where that ended up in the financial crisis, uh, you know, whether it's been all of the efforts on the left to try to steer markets in one way or another uh, that haven't worked. I think that, you know, the, the solution to this problem, I think, that for, for Republicans who are looking at where do we go now is uh, not to concede the, the argument that it was the market that created all of these problems. I think it's to add some value by looking at new ways uh, in which government intervention created a lot of these uh, problems and distortions. The, the, the other thing that uh, disturbs me about what Tucker Carlson is saying, he talks about greed, and he's sort of starting from the same premise of the left with this sort of Gordon Gecko caricature of capitalists. I mean, Tucker Carlson tries to maximize the money he makes as a host of Fox News. Why is somebody else maximizing the, the money that they can make, maximizing their earning power, trying to advance their career? Why is that greedy in a bad way, but Tucker Carlson maximizing uh, uh, what he's able to earn is not greedy? It reminds me of the old Milton Friedman uh, formulation when he was on Phil Donahue about to greed. You know, who isn't greedy? You think the Soviet commissar isn't greedy? Where are these magical people that are going to descend from on high who aren't greedy, who don't have the same interests and the same failings as any other human being? And so the moralizing about greed, if you start from the left's premise, don't you get the left's conclusions? Uh, yeah, I mean, greed is such a meaningless word when you have these political arguments because it's ambition, it, it's healthy ambition when I do it, but it's bad greed when you do right. it is basically what it boils down to. Right. Uh, and I think that I don't see the profit for conservatives in engaging in this kind of envy politics, especially at a time 
uh, when we're conducting a bit of an experiment under President Trump in terms of trying to dial back some of the government. I mean, we talk a lot about the 2017 tax reform, but the other thing the Trump administration is doing uh, is a major deregulation drive, and you can see the fruits of that in terms of rising prosperity for a lot of people at a lot of different uh, levels of the income ladder. And why are uh, people so eager to dismiss the evidence in front of their own eyes about what is uh, working to help a lot of these people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, You have a piece in the journal uh, about uh, the ongoing trade war between the United States and China, phase one deal scheduled to be signed January 15th, and then uh, more difficulties as uh, you try to achieve a phase two deal, at least that's according to the administration, Peter Navarro and Larry Kudlow and the gang. Uh, you had you made an interesting point, and this is an underappreciated one uh, about China's problems. Uh, it's not just uh, tariffs. The problem, one reason that China is struggling and it's not growing, is because its population is aging and its working age population declining. If you've seen One Child Nation, you know how well the central planners did in uh, population control. Now it's Two Child Nation because, uh, as, as you describe. They've decimated the demographics of their people. And and so how do you see this playing out and what's sort of the best path forward for uh, the Trump administration and their despite their protectionist tendencies? Well, I, what I have found fascinating about so much of this trade war rhetoric, I, I lived in Hong Kong for eight years uh, writing for the journal, reporting on the Chinese economy. And the thing that always struck me is how vulnerable it is. Uh, you know, the Chinese are riding a unicycle here, trying to keep their balance as, as best they can uh, with a very unstable economy. They have all of these demographic pressures. Uh, they have a lot of political pressures that are arising from corruption, from the problem that the uh, Communist Party government has distributing uh, rising prosperity equally or, or fairly. Uh, across the economy. Joseph Sternberg, columnist and editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal, author of The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joe, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Great to be on. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And it was an eventful weekend in NFL football. And no, I'm not talking about Colin Kaepernick's nonsensical tweets about uh, the strike in Iran or uh, against the Iranian general. Uh, the Patriots and the Saints getting bounced in the first round. That's unusual, but it did provide the opportunity for one of my favorite events in NFL, which is the post-loss Bill Belichick press conference masterclass. This guy should be retained as, uh, not that Stephanie Grisham isn't doing a good job, but should be retained as Trump's spokesman, and he should restart those press briefings just so Jim Acosta and the rest of them would have to deal with Bill Belichick's disdain on a routine basis. Belichick's thinly veiled hate, if I could use such a strong word, for the sports press corps is really something to behold, beginning with his opening statement. Um, All right, well, you know, this is a game where we, uh, you know, came a little bit short um, at our opportunities and 
you know, obviously a close game, um, but just couldn't just couldn't make enough plays tonight. And, uh, you know, it's always disappointing to to end like this. But it's the National Football League. Just keep playing. We gotta just gotta play a little bit better. We couldn't do it. Yeah, he's so flamboyant. Uh, Belichick uh, answering the question on everybody's mind: What's Brady's future now as a free agent? Bill, do you anticipate the Patriots will bring back Tom Brady for the 2020 season? No, right now, we just finished the game, so we're focused on this game, okay? <laughs> and you have to watch it, too, to appreciate just how uh, annoyed he was by the question. Uh, also, uh, any message you had for the players in the locker room after the tough loss? Bill, what was the message to the players after the game? I know it was a tough, long season. I know they're, they're hurting right now, but what was your message to them? Yeah. I keep that between me and the players, like I always do. Good talk. Uh, what was the problem on offense? Only 13 points. Bill, offensively, what, how would you sum what went wrong for your group today? Yeah, we just didn't make enough plays. We had some opportunities and just weren't able to yeah. score enough points. 13 wasn't enough. 13 is less than 20. That turned out to be the problem. This is fun chalk talk with Bill Belichick, isn't it? Uh, and then even when somebody lobs him a softball, uh, a message of positivity to the fans, <laughs> Belichick takes the moment to skewer her. Pat's Nation, your fans have, have stuck with you through thick, thick and thin um, social media. It just, they still love you. Do you have any message for the fans who have, are so, so supportive of you and the team? Yeah, we appreciate our fans. Um... I wouldn't say it's been all that thin around here personally. <laughs> Maybe you feel differently, but I, I, I haven't heard too many fans say that. So It's just gratuitous. So no happy ending for Bob Kraft and the Patriots on Saturday and um, no happy ending for the press corps and having to deal with a angered Bill Belichick in the postgame presser. Maybe they should all go to Orchids of Asia and Jupiter, Florida together. This is the Dan Prof Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. You remember the uh, piece by uh, Publius Ducius Muss in 2016. Later, we found out that was uh, Michael Anton writing in the Claremont Review of Books that uh, 2016 was the Flight 93 election for conservatives. Uh, it was going to be the last stand for anything resembling cultural conservative values, really founding values being present in American culture. Jared Baker over at the Wall Street Journal has a fun piece that uh, where he sort of channels Tom Wolfe from Radical Chic talking about a uh, party he attended just before Christmas with, you know, all the who's who of elites in New York City. He writes, there were titans of Wall Street, giants of the media, former political figures now earning an honest million or nine at private equity firms. Men and women who answer to that oxymoronic description of public intellectuals, grand dames of the Manhattan salons whose accumulated Botox bills would pay down the public debt of one of the more dynamic emerging market countries. Oh. This is fantastic. It's really, I mean, I told you, channeling Radical Chic. He talked about how uh, the mood was rather grim, even though the party was decorous. 
the elite, as he writes, leaning on each other for comfort because of populism, nationalism, Trump and Boris. He writes, for the liberals who dominate the media, the academy or our permanent government and many of corporate America's C-suites, 2020 is shaping up to be their Flight 93 election. To listen to the Democrat candidates, if Mr. Trump is reelected in November, it will be the end. This is their last chance to avert the Goddardamerung of a second Trump administration. Wonderful Wagner reference, too. I appreciate that. He he continues to lampoon them, noting that it's an odd sort of populist revolution that they uh, reject insofar as not only has it left the uh, sort of paradigm in place, but it's actually enriched the, the guarantors of it. But the real issue, he uh, concludes, is not the livelihoods or even their power that these elites risk losing. It's their relevance. In elevating voices other than theirs, voices ignored for decades in the national conversation, it will make them seem less relevant. That's something they really fear, their lack of relevance. Very insightful piece. For more on the topic, uh, as well as a discussion of Iran, we're pleased to be joined again by Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion, contributor to amgreatness.com as well. Roger, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, what about uh, what uh, Jared Baker suggests that for uh, leftist elites— and I repeat myself, 2020 is their Flight 93 election. Uh, yes, I, I, think, I think that that's correct. I, you know, they've been trying to storm the cockpit for the last three years, but uh, <laughs> to, to, to no avail. Uh, I mean, I suppose the, the limits of the analogy are that the plane is on course and not been hijacked by, you know, a nefarious mass murdering crew, but, but rather is a, uh, the, the airplane has been retaken by the good guys. Not that the not that the never Trumpers are necessarily bad guys. It's just that I think uh, Jerry Baker got it exactly right, that they're terrified by um, the prospect of their permanent exile from the corridors of power. You know, let's face it, people like Bill Crystal had been wont to think of himself as a sort of power behind the throne, someone who's, <clears throat> it is true, his political prognostications had the perhaps unmatched virtue of being always wrong. I mean, I, I can't think of a single political prediction that he made that was correct. Uh, I mean, everybody gets some of them wrong, but he got them all wrong, which is a kind of distinction. And his judgment in retrospect, when we see his his desire to put forward Evan McMullen or David French as a, a presidential candidate to stand against Trump, is, it seems um, sort of sad and risible now. Yes. But it's a kind Kind of Wizard of Oz moment when we where there's all of this sturm and drang, uh, and we look behind the curtain, and there are these these little men and women, uh, Jennifer Rubens and Bill Crystals and Max Boots, scurrying around little homunculi screaming, <laughs> but, you know, to no avail. Nobody really pays them any attention. And the only reason that they have any audience at all is because of the left. The left is perfectly happy to give people like Max Boot a platform because they can say, well, see, here's a conservative who is beating up on President Trump and his supporters. But of course, he's not a conservative. He's, he's um, a kind of exiled 
erstwhile conservative. Well, uh, just speaking of the politically promiscuous elites, Michael Bloomberg, you know, he spent his way into third place in some of the national polling. That doesn't necessarily mean he's registering in the early states. You, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of Rudy Giuliani's run for president. You know, you actually have to win some caucuses and primary. So we'll see yeah. what he can do at some point. But it, it seems to me like he, he may be the uh, white knight for this elite that uh, Jared Baker writes about in the journal. And I wonder if you think there's the possibility that he can buy his way to relevance in the race. Well, you know, possibility is cheap. I mean, uh, any, anything, I suppose, is possible. Is it likely that um, that Michael Bloomberg would be the uh, candidate? No, I think it's vanishingly uh, uh, unlikely. Um, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, do, do buy you a certain amount of attention. They certainly will buy you the uh, the, the um, uh, prostituted services of consultants who are eager to take your dollars. But, um, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg is not going to be the candidate. Uh, or, I mean, if you think, I suppose it's possible that he could be a third-party candidate, but then then uh, that would just uh, assure the, the greater margin of, of President Trump's victory. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's a kind of, to me, it's a sort of little distraction. I don't think that he is, I don't think that it's going to happen. Comrade Bernie, uh, he, the elimination of uh, General Soleimani, a political assassination, as did Warren, as has much of the left uh, there. It's, it's reckless. Sure. It's a, it's a stick right. of dynamite and a tinderbox. It's uh, World mm-hmm. War Three. We're going to reinstitute the draft. Um, any, uh, you wrote a piece at uh, amgreatness.com. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, about an antidote for the Iranian hysterics. What is that antidote? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just to back up, the the uh, the the, um, the, the uh, Soleimani was a mass murderer. He uh, his elimination was <clears throat> a public service. Um, it's in a way no different from what uh, Ronald Reagan did when when he bombed Libya. His intention was to kill uh, Muammar Gaddafi. He bombed his house. Uh, uh, why? Because um, there had been a, um, a uh, bombing in a discotheque in Berlin in which uh, several people were killed, scores injured. Among those killed were two Americans. And Ronald Reagan uh, said, this will not stand. And, uh, you know, President Trump is, uh, is not a, a hawk. He he much prefers diplomacy to military action. And he, you know, um, in fact, he was criticized by, by many for not taking a stronger uh, stance after the Iranians shot down <clears throat> uh, a, a drone. But killing Americans is a red line in the sand for him, as he showed. Uh, the, the Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of Americans and uh, scores of thousands of Syrians. Um, the idea that, as the Washington Post put it, that he was a revered figure mm-hmm. is preposterous. He, you know, the the, the Iranians uh, themselves, the people of Iran, uh, who were subject to his, uh, um, you know, to, to his methods, uh, are celebrating his death. Not the mullahs, but the, the the protesters, the people who were protesting against the regime. Uh, you know, against whom he, he, you know, he brought the force of his, uh, of his police state, uh, you know, they were celebrating. Well, uh, so it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a totally justified. And Iran is not in the position to uh, institute 
uh, World War Three or even, uh, you know, a game of cops and robbers. And, and uh, now we're subjected to the indignity, courtesy of the Beltway Big Government Press Corps, of taking the, the Potemkin funeral service for the general. Uh, yeah. We're supposed to take that just as Iran is presenting it as, some, you know, a, a nation mourns kind of bull jive. It's really amazing to see yeah. Iranian propaganda amplified by American press. Yeah. So, you you know, you expect the Iranians to do that. And I expect the mullahs to jump up and down and, and scream death to America, as they've been doing for the last 30 years. That's, you know, that's the. Yeah, that's the no, that's the uh, that's that's the that's the playbook. I mean, what what is disappointing is the fact that so much of the American media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN uh, and, and, and on and on, that they should take up this chant as well. That that is uh, uh, that that is disappointing. Um, I, I think this is going to be a little bit like the Israelis bombing of uh um, you know the the, the uh, Iraqi nuclear plant. Mm-hmm. It uh, a lot of people criticized it at the time publicly, but privately they were very happy about it. Uh, I sus- you know one never knows, but uh, I suspect this will blow over in a matter of days. He is Roger Kimball. He's editor of the New Criterion, also a contributor to uh, American Greatness, AmGreatness.com. Roger, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. you listen the more you'll know this is the dan prof show welcome back to the dan prof show thank you for joining us on a bit of a lighter note although there's a lot of substance here ricky gervais is hosting of the golden globes on sunday night and uh, his monologue, where he just ripped down uh, the entire Hollywood elite uh, as they were sitting in front of him. It was rather remarkable. And, uh, yeah, they were punchlines, and there's this uh, patina of everybody just having good fun at each other's expense, like it was a Comedy Central roast. But I don't know. There was something very pointed about what Ricky Gervais was saying about the Hollywood, the culture that Hollywood promotes. And uh, this is coming from a man of the left. I mean, Kevin Hart was fired from the Oscars because of some offensive tweets. Hello. <laughs> Lucky for me, the Hollywood foreign press can barely speak English. And they've no idea what Twitter is. So I got offered this gig by fax. So let's go out with a bang. Let's have a laugh at your expense, shall we? Remember, they're just jokes. We're all going to die soon, and there's no sequel. So, yeah, okay, Uh, that was tame, but then he started getting ramped up a couple minutes in. But tonight isn't just about the people in front of the camera. In this room are some of the most important TV and film executives in the world, people from every background, but they all have one thing in common. They're all terrified of Ronan Farrow. <laughs> He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Look, talking of all you perverts, room. it was a big year. <laughs> it was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. 
I don't care. I don't care. And on uh, identity politics? Many talented people of colour were snubbed in major categories. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood foreign press are all very, very racist. So, <laughs> fifth time. So, we were going to do an in memoriam this year, but when I saw the list of people that had died, it wasn't diverse enough. It just, no. It was mostly white people. And I thought, nah, not on my watch. And how about uh, going back to pedophiles? How about their good friend, Jeffrey Epstein? This show should just be me coming out going, well done, Netflix, you win everything. Good night. But no, no, we've got to drag it out for three hours. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That, that's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer. And it's still more fun than this, okay? <laughs> Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way. So in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. I know he's your friend, but I don't care. It's remarkable when the camera panned to all of the stars and starlets, how uncomfortable some of the faces were. And it just continued on that theme. Pedophiles. Long, but amazing. Um, It wasn't the only epic movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nearly three hours long, Leonardo DiCaprio attended the premiere, and by the end, his date was too old for him. So... (laughs) Even Prince Andrew's like, come on, Leo, mate, you know. (laughs) You're nearly 50, son. Oh, uh, DiCaprio's uh, famous, uh, you age out of being a DiCaprio girlfriend if you're over 25 years old. But uh, Jeffrey Epstein has been called. Prince Andrew has been called. Uh, Apple, you've been called too. And all the woke companies that uh, all of these multimillionaires in attendance work for while they uh, preach something very different than they practice. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God. And- so, it's already three hours. You're dumb, crude, corrupt, and vainglorious. Have a good night, everybody. Raise your hand if you've been on the Lolita Express, if you've hung out with Prince Andrew. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, you should have seen Tim Cook's face, for those who didn't see it, didn't watch it. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, was in attendance. Uh, I don't think he was prepared for the Apple Runs Chinese Sweatshops line. It was virtue signaling to the virtue signalers. So it was a delicious comeuppance, even though I said, again, Gervais is a man of the left. What it really reminded me of 
was Dave Chappelle's stand-up uh, a few months ago, the end of last year, that went viral. His message to his audience, to Dave Chappelle fans, just like Ricky Gervais was giving a bit of a message to his colleagues in entertainment. You remember what Chappelle did? I want to see if you can guess who it is I'm doing an impression of. All right, let me get into character. You got to guess who it is, though. <clears throat> okay, here it goes. Uh, duh, hey, duh, if you do anything wrong in your life, duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now, if I find out you're f***ing duh, finished. Who, who's that? That's you. That's what the audience sounds like to me. That's why I don't be coming out doing comedy all the time, because y'all is the worst motherfuckers I've ever tried to entertain in my f***ing life. Now they're roaring because they've been instructed to roar. But you heard, who am I doing? Who's the impression I'm doing? You heard the people shout out, Trump, Trump. I'm doing you. This is you. This is what you sound like. And now we're all laughing like, oh, Dave, you did it to us. You got us. But there's a point there. He is impersonating you. You're so self-unaware you don't get it. And you ascribe your behavior to someone you otherwise don't like when you hear the people yelling Trump, Trump. And that's the same thing that happened at the Golden Globes yesterday. And this against the backdrop, too. I mean, again, Hollywood's a lack of self-awareness. Harvey Weinstein trial begins today. And CNN uh, got him to answer some questions in written form that they asked. No, one of the questions wasn't, how's his battle to take down the NRA going? Remember, that was his cover story when the accusations first started piling up. I don't have time to deal with the accusations. I'm too busy fighting the NRA. License to be a monster because I support the right leftist causes, policies, oppose the right conservative organizations. And Weinstein's answers I mean, just just the, the more of the self-indulgence you would expect from these monsters. And by the way, the people in that room that said nothing for how long? The people in that room that said nothing about Michael Jackson for how long? About R. Kelly for how long? About Jeffrey Epstein for how long? It was a wonderful night at the Golden Globes from a conservative perspective. You don't get that a lot. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Is mentioning, uh, well, it wasn't me, it was Ricky Gervais saying to the Hollywood elites, uh, Sunday's Golden Globes. Most of you have less education than Greta Thunberg. That's really saying something. Speaking of uh, young Greta, Meatloaf. Yeah, Meatloaf devoured Greta in an interview he gave uh, to the Daily Mail. Uh, he uh, said, "I feel for I I, uh, I feel for Greta. She's been brainwashed into thinking there's climate change and there isn't. She hasn't done anything wrong, but she's been forced into thinking what she is saying is true." Uh, I wouldn't say there's no such thing as climate change. Of course, the climate is always changing. We know over the last 30 years, the Earth's temperature has increased by one degree Fahrenheit. What he, of course, is referencing is end times are not imminent. And there's no scientific basis to make these apocalyptic claims. And it's not only 
not only uh, meatloaf trying to deliver an education, it's uh, some California television anchors at L.A., KTLA, these news anchors. They inadvertently do it while talking about California's new law. You know, California is poised to uh, lose a congressional seat for the first time in its, in its history. They've uh, got a new law, and again, one of Governor Gavin Newsom's wonderful accomplishments, limiting uh, Californians to 55 gallons of water usage per day. And uh, there wasn't an appreciation for this until these anchors started talking it through. Give it a listen. All right, this one, I'm not sure how I feel about this. You're not going to be allowed to shower and do a load of laundry in the same day. I, I, I had the, the same misgivings. Um, doing a load of laundry takes about 40 to, to 50 gallons of water. Uh, taking a shower for about eight minutes takes about 17 gallons of water. Well, there's a limitation on your daily use of water of 55 gallons per day. So that means if you are taking a shower and you're doing a load of laundry, you can't do both without being in violation of the law. Um, there are some exceptions about this. There are some caveats. Uh, for instance, if you have a multi-person household, if you have four people in your household or three people in your household, that 55-gallon limit per day applies in, uh, for each person. So it, you could do a load of laundry um, if you have a multi-person uh, household. And, and okay. So who's going to police gonna, that? Yeah. Gonna cuff Mark Krisky when yeah, he's yeah, yeah, you know, laundry? Yeah. What's going on? Who's enforcing this? Well, yeah. you, you can actually see your, your water uses on a daily rate uh, with your water meter. Uh, now, there are actually fines available for this as well. Your, fines your first, available. Your, your violation is $1,000. <laughs> per each day I, that you are in violation. Wait, who, who made this a law? Uh, who made this the law? It's the state legislature. Uh, uh, the governor signed this into effect. It goes into effect January 1st. Now, there's also another caveat. If we're in drought conditions and the governor declares an emergency, that fine can go up to $10,000 a day. So be careful. You know, you, oh could, you, you could change your word to serenity to anger now. Wow. You're not going to be able to shower in 2020. Uh, you know what? I'm going to pick doing laundry over showering. So, so all of a sudden, I can smoke marijuana as much as I want, but I can't take a shower. Yeah, it's, it's a Unbelievable. Yeah, how about that? Uh, how do you like your Democrat socialist now? How do you like your apocalyptic greenies uh, you, using scare tactics as the predicate for power grabs now? Now that you're deciding between doing a load of laundry or showering while facing fines of $1,000 a day if you exceed the 55-gallon limit. What do you think now? You you want to join those uh, fr- fire drill Friday protests that Jane Fonda is orchestrating around the country? Sound good to you? Mike Schellenberger, uh, who is a uh, writer for Forbes magazine uh, and an MD, he uh, uh, responded to Gavin Newsom tweeting out at the first of the year all the accomplishments that the Newsom administration and uh, his loyal Democrat socialist in charge of the California state legislature had piled up and he responded uh, with his own list. Schellenberger, California in 2019, dangerous, unprecedented blackouts, homeless population increased by 130 to 150,000 home building declined 20 percent, 2000 person exodus, as I mentioned earlier, first ever loss of a congressional seat coming after the 2020 census. Uh, Instead of holding, uh, Schellenberger went on, he had a lot to say in the direction of Gavin Newsom. Instead of holding PG&E, utility company, to account, you bailed it out. Instead of building new homes, you imposed rent rationing. Instead of fighting poverty and fixing schools, you made college athletes millionaires. Instead of protecting clean air, you try to kill our largest source of clean power, nuclear. 
Instead of standing up to the unions, you help them ban freelancers. Instead of taking responsibility for a homeless crisis, you help create, you blame Trump. Instead of governing, you write juvenile tweets in a narcissistic run for president. At least Nero played the fiddle. Gavin Newsom not even playing the fiddle while California Burns just tweeting. And you, you wonder why people are fleeing California, as beautiful a state as it is, the warmth. Why are people moving from San Diego to Houston for the weather? I don't think so. It's policies. It's man-made disasters made by men like Gavin Newsom. This is the Dan Prop Show. Would you rescue me? Would you give my back? Would you take my car when I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Uh, would you rescue me? Would you rescue me when I'm by myself? When I need your love? If I need your help, would you rescue me? This is the Dan Prop Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The big question in the wake of the strike that took out Iranian General Soleimani is how will the Iranians respond uh, after their Potemkin funeral that is happening today? Uh, President Trump is prepared for their response, as he indicated on Friday. If Americans anywhere are threatened, we have all of those targets already fully identified, and I am ready and prepared to take whatever action is necessary. And that in particular refers to Iran. Secretary of State Pompeo was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. He elaborated on the preparation for retaliation. We've made clear to the, th- the theocrats and kleptocrats that are running Iran today, running it into the ground against the will of their own people, we made clear to them that we would not respond just against these proxy forces that they run in, in Yemen and in Syria and in Iraq and in Lebanon. We made clear that this cost would be brought home to them to the leadership regime in Iran, and that we would raise costs. We wouldn't just attack uh, their asymmetric efforts. We would respond in a way that imposed costs on the decision makers who are putting American lives at risk. And so far, the response has been for Iran to instigate a a call from the Iraqi government for American troop withdrawal. Uh, their uh, announcement that it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. They're not going to abide any of the strictures of the Obama-era nuclear deal. And uh, and also this uh, report that there was a hack of the Federal Depository Library program uh, that was uh, in response to uh, the attack or the, the response to the killing of General Soleimani with the hackers saying this is a demonstration of uh, Iran's cyber attack capacity. Hmm. For more on uh, assessing what the Iranians might do next and how the U.S. should respond, we're pleased to be joined by Seth Fransman. He is an op-ed editor and Middle East affairs analyst at the Jerusalem Post. Seth, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, what's your assessment of two things, Iran's capacity to respond and what form that capacity is likely to take? Well, Iran has lots of capacity in the sense that it has militias like in Iraq and Hezbollah and Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen, and it has all these like small attack boats in the Gulf. But in the end of the day, most of this stuff doesn't add up that much if you're dealing with a, a major powerful military like the United States or an ally like Israel. I mean, these, these small boats that are swarming can be just 
picked apart by an aircraft carrier when the order is given. So I think that Iran has to be very, very careful. I think that Iran has sort of thrived on the fact in the past that it knew that there would usually be no response. Like if you recall years ago, they, they kidnapped a few U.S. sailors and obviously go back to the 80s, they uh, did the hostage crisis and things like that. So they thrive on the fact that they think that the West and particularly the United States is basically fearful of getting into a war because they can read our media just like we can and and they see that there is a lot of people out there that say, well, we don't want a war with Iran, whereas Iran doesn't have a free media, and they just say openly, death to America in their, in their parliament. In your piece of National Review uh, assessing this, one of the things you point out, which I, I don't think is pointed out very much in uh, American media, is uh, just exactly um, how technologically uh, may, inept may be too strong a word, but... Uh, the, the technological capacity that the Revolutionary Guard has is not what we may understand it to be. Well, look, the Revolutionary Guard, you know, unlike some militaries in the Middle East, certainly has its own indigenous forces that it has built up, including ballistic missiles and precision missiles and, and drones. And that's important. It's, it has used those missiles. It certainly has accurate missiles. But you don't win a war by firing missiles. So you can, of course, harass an enemy. You can attack strategic infrastructure in a place like Saudi Arabia. With the, you know, They had this oil attack in September they already carried out. Right. I think that's an example of what they can do. Can they do worse than that? I don't know. Look, they can fire missiles at an international airport. And I think that obviously firing a whole bunch of precision-guided missiles at a major airport in, for instance, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, that would be very, very bad. And I think the United States would have to, of course, make sure that all of its allies can defend against that. But that's all that Iran can do. It, it can pinpoint and strike in a strategic place and cause a, a crisis. But it can't wage a real war that will defeat America if America actually wanted to fight a war against it. And I think it understands it. So it, that's why it kidnaps professors and things like that. It tends to choose soft targets. And uh, Israel is not a soft target, but there's a lot of supposition that the retaliation could come in the form of an attack on Israel in some form as a message to the United States. Is, is that, is that a, a real threat? Is that something that uh, you consider possible? That's a threat. I think that in the last year or so, Iran has launched at least five missiles or, or missile salvos against Israel, some of which didn't even actually get through the airspace, but they also used drones once. Now, Israel has responded to that by launching something like a thousand airstrikes or maybe more against around 250 targets in Syria. So if you look at the equation, the reality is the Iranians know what's coming. If the Iranians decide to operationalize Hezbollah, and give the order for Hezbollah to fire 100,000 missiles at Israel, I think Israel has indicated, with U.S. Bank backing, that Israel will just completely destroy that organization. And I think that Hassan Nasrallah and the leaders of Hezbollah, they just saw what happened to Soleimani. I think that they they may not themselves want to become the martyrs that they pretend that they uh, they are. <laughs> how, how much of this saber-rattling is oh, is the, the mullah's attempt to deflect attention away from an economy that has been crippled by U.S. sanctions? I think you can certainly read part of it as that. I mean, certain, for, the big thing is that in the last month, Iran killed around 1,500 protesters. So Iran certainly wants to show that it doesn't have any internal dissent because, as I indicated before, the Iranian regime reads the U.S. media. You can see they all tweet in English and try to poke fun at Trump and things like that. 
because they don't have their own free media. But if they did have a free media, it would reveal the fact that large numbers of Iranians don't like this regime. Young people, uh, you know, are not interested in this theocratic kind of holdover from the Cold War era of the 1980s. You know, they want something different. So, you know, if you look at people like Soleimani and Mohandas, the guys that were killed by the U.S. airstrike, these are products of the 1950s and 60s generation. They grew up in the 1980s. So, you know, this is just a different generation. And I think that those people are not interested in war. When Americans say, well, we don't want a war either, I think the Iranians don't want a war. And I think the regime knows that. He is Seth Fransman. He's an op-ed editor and Middle East affairs analyst at the Jerusalem Post. Seth, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate your insights. Thank you. Come on, fat and just bust the move. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Last July, uh, friend and colleague Dennis Prager testified before Senate Judiciary Subcommittee about uh, the censorship of Prager University videos by YouTube and by extension his parent company, Google. A battle he has been waging against Google, uh, which has been rather uh, iconoclastic when it comes to engaging Dennis and explaining why they're censoring particular videos. He uh, detailed this in his testimony, in part, uh, offering some examples. We uh, we have 320 videos, 15 of them concern Israel, and half of them have at one time or another been restricted. There is clearly a, a loathing of Israel at Google. I I suspect there is a loathing of America as well. Virtually every uh, video that we have put out that depicts America in a favorable way has also been at some time or another on the restricted list. My favorite example for years was Victor Davis Hanson, this remarkable professor of classics. And he he made a video. He's one of the most uh, calm-speaking humans I have ever met. He's the opposite of of, of a grenade-throwing speaker. And the subject was the Korean War. The Korean War in five minutes. And it is no longer on the restricted. They go in and out, apparently, uh, in some cases. And that was on the restricted list. because. uh, So I try to think, why would that be? And I I could only come up with the fact that it shows how noble America's cause in in Korea was. That 37,000 Americans died to keep half of the Korean peninsula free. How many people even know that? Mm, Prager University uh, racked up more than the, the videos with Prager U.S. racked up more than a billion views. So maybe the censorship has very little to do with the substance uh, and much more to do with trying to silence somebody who is presenting views that run afoul of the views of the big tech company Panjandrums, starting with uh, Larry and Sergey and the gang over at Google. And so fast forward to uh, this weekend, New York Times piece on Prager University, right wing views for Generation Z five minutes at a time. This sort of uh, giving the backstory on Prager University. So the New York Times concern isn't that uh, there is a disposition against Prager University videos that address the state of Israel or Judaism and uh, any questions about that. It's about uh, essentially is Prager University getting too powerful. It's having too much influence, quoting left wing crank organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center 
which is a hate group that projects onto conservatives its hate uh, and uh, going through some of the presenters and it's, it's talking about the money that Prager University raises, which is all through voluntary contributions. The whole tone of the piece is, you know, this is something to watch out for. So it's not the censors that we have a problem with in our free society, New York Times, the gray lady. It's those they're censoring, like Dennis Prager. I mean, a renowned intellect for 50 years who's contributed much to the political discourse, a heck of a lot more than the New York Times. This is the Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. It's not just a hashtag. It's not just a, a meme for amateur conspiracy theorists. It's also a question. Did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? And it's a question that 60 Minutes explored on Sunday night, uh, interviewing a number of uh, pertinent individuals, uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, the, uh, the the famed coroner who has been retained by Epstein's brother to investigate the circumstances surrounding Epstein's death. Uh, also talked to a lawyer, uh, 60 Minutes did, for a killer cop that was... Briefly, Epstein's roommate, cellmate, I should say, as well as a former warden about uh, the decision making throughout the course of Epstein's time at the MCC in New York City, how this could have ended like this. And why is the investigation taking so long? The guards, the two guards who were asleep at the switch uh, have apparently not been questioned by authorities yet, even as they face criminal charges. And so they've otherwise shut up. They're not providing any insights. Uh, so they started with the, Dr. Michael Bodden, what insights he has, so the issues that give rise to the belief that Epstein didn't kill himself, starting with the autopsy. The forensic evidence released so far, including the autopsy, point much more to murder and strangulation than the suicide and suicidal hanging. I hesitate to make a final opinion until all the evidence is in. People will say, well... You're being paid by Mark Epstein, so of course you're going to say that something suspicious is going on. That's a reasonable thing for some people to think. But our job is to find what the truth is, just to find out whether it's a homicide or a suicide. Uh, we're uh, still haven't gotten all the information. So let's go step by step. Uh, one of the things that Baden seizes on is the EMS response once the guard finally woke up and came to Epstein's cell at about 6.30 on the day in question, 6.30 a.m., found him unresponsive. The guards say they came in at 6.30. They found him. They call emergency services. They tried to do CPR with him, but he's dead. But rather than leave the body there, they take the body to an emergency room. Yeah. Is that normal protocol? No, that's, that's not normal protocol. The EMS people normally, and especially in jail, should not move a dead body. He's right. 
Bureau of Prison Protocol mandates a suicide scene should be treated with the same level of protection as any crime scene in which a death has occurred. Now, that may be protocol, but at an interesting call when we tackle this topic on the morning show I co-host in Chicago from a uh, paramedic, basically saying, well, you know, one of the, the things, uh, if if uh, if the guards gave the re- EMS uh, personnel bad information or just to, to err on the safe side, uh, because you don't know, the, the report after the fact was that Epstein had passed away about two hours earlier. So about 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. that morning. But if you don't know and you're an EMS professional, you know this high-profile case, you're not just going to leave the body there and call it. You're going to go into life-saving protocols and uh, move the body, you know, remove the body to get additional care. So you have to take that into account as a plausible explanation for why the body was moved, despite what uh, the protocol for Department of Corrections says. A couple more issues. The, uh, again, the lawyer for the killer cop that was briefly a cellmate of Epstein, the uh, report that there was an attack on Epstein by this cellmate, as well as a former warden, not the MCC, but just in the penal system, who addressed whether or not Epstein should have ever been removed from the psych unit of the MCC after his alleged first suicide attempt. Epstein says that Nick tried to kill him. Nick says absolutely nothing like that happened. Well, it's not just Nick says absolutely nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. No one says that uh, Nick tried to kill Epstein. Epstein was moved to the psych unit and placed on suicide watch. But one week later, Epstein, at the direction of the MCC's psychological staff, was taken off suicide watch and required to have an assigned cellmate. This was a monumental failure on all levels, and that's why it has fueled the conspiracies, and I understand that. Cameron Lindsay is a former federal prison warden. Who should have made sure that he wasn't taken off suicide watch, in your opinion? The leadership of the facility should have stepped in and said, while I appreciate the perspective of you, chief psychologist, I'm going to override that decision, and we're going to leave Epstein on suicide watch, especially subsequent to the suicide attempt that he had. So there's three issues, right? There's the question about the EMS response and removing the body. There's the uh, disagreement about whether or not this uh, killer cop that was his cellmate attacked him or didn't. There's whether or not he should have stayed in the psych unit after his alleged first suicide attempt. Uh, There's another issue, and that's the surveillance camera, second surveillance camera uh, that could have captured anybody in or around his cell at the time in question, well, that wasn't working. In November, Attorney General William Barr told reporters he personally reviewed surveillance video that showed nobody entered the area where Epstein was held. But sources say a second camera inside the tier, the one that could have seen Epstein's cell door and the doors of other inmates, was not working that night. The theories that are out there, one of them is that it was another inmate who may have killed Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, come on. You don't believe that? <laughs> he was found hanging in his cell. Um, he had tried to commit suicide before that. He was a very wealthy man who was looking at a lifetime in prison. That's that uh, criminal defense attorney for his former roommate, the killer cellmate, the killer cop, saying, I don't believe the conspiracy theories. Uh, also saying that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, which... Uh, diverges from Kipling, who said a woman is just a woman, but a cigar is a smoke. But I digress. Uh, Also, 
uh, former warden weighing in on the same topic. Despite these irregularities and professional failures, do you believe it's possible that Epstein was murdered? The guards fell asleep. It seems almost impossible to think all of those things could happen in that way. It does. And that's what makes this so shocking. I mean, this is a failure on multiple levels. Do you think there's any way that Jeffrey Epstein could have been murdered? Absolutely, unequivocally not. No, he doesn't think so. Hadn't been a murder at the MCC in 14 years, according to 60 Minutes. So it's highly unusual. And then, of course, all of the circumstances surrounding Epstein's captivity are wildly unusual. Uh, So we've talked about four of them. It continues... There was also the fact that Epstein had certain items in his cell that he wouldn't have had or shouldn't have had if there was any belief that he could be suicidal. Dr. Michael Bodden says if anyone thought Jeffrey Epstein was suicidal, they wouldn't have let him have a ballpoint pen that could be used to harm himself or someone else. The other thing we just noticed looking at the photos, it appears he had some kind of sleep apnea machine. You can see a long electrical cord. Yes, there were other wires and cords present that it would have been easy to uh, use to hang oneself within a few minutes. So why not use the electrical cord as opposed to fashioning a noose out of uh, a shard of bedsheet? And then there's the injuries themselves, how they were sustained. Abaddon goes into the three fractures. So that now we're on the fifth and sixth issue. The fractures in the noose. Here's Baden on the fractures. I have never seen three fractures like this in a suicidal hanging. Sometimes there's a fracture of the higher bone or a fracture of the thyroid cartilage. But not three. Very unusual to have two and not three. And going over over a thousand jail hangings, suicides, in the New York City state prisons over the past 40, 50 years... No one had three fractures. Now, government officials dispute Baden's conclusion that saying may, may be unlikely, but it's not unheard of. Uh, it's something, though, when you hear Baden say, I looked at 40 to 50 years of prison records and suicides, and that had never occurred. And then the issue of the noose. What I see here is that this noose doesn't match the ligature furrow mark. It's uh, wider than this. To the naked eye, it looks like there's some blood here, and it doesn't look like there's any blood on this noose. That's right. This looks like a clean noose that was never used to compress anybody's neck. There's also something that's striking about the photos. The wound is down here. You'd think if somebody hung themselves, the wound would be maybe up here. Yes. Most hangings, especially free hangings, the ligature slides up to beneath the, the uh, jawbone, the mandible. Here it's in the middle of the neck. Dr. Bodden says a wound straight across the neck is more common when a victim is strangled by a wire or cord. So 60 Minutes report identified no less than eight issues with the handling of the captivity and questions about the injury sustained uh, and uh, the explanation for said injuries, concluding that it was a suicide. I don't know that they've offered an alternative theory about what could have happened, but they, uh, 60 Minutes certainly raised questions about what the official story is. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.
Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. General David Petraeus, former CIA director, the point man on the surge in Iraq 15 years ago, was on Face the Nation with uh, Margaret Brennan over the weekend. And, uh, of course, asked about the uh, killing of General Suleimani. And he described that event this way. What has happened here, I think, is frankly that we lost the element of deterrence, the component of deterrence that was seen as American will. Our drone, $130 million drone, was shot down, did nothing significant in response. 5% of the world's oil production taken out of operation. Numerous attacks on shipping, and then attacks on our forces, ultimately, of course, killing an American and wounding four of our soldiers. So ultimately, the, the president appears to have decided that it was necessary to take an action to shore up deterrence Mm -hmm. to show that we were not going to accept this. Get our deterrence back, get our groove back, as it were. And uh, that's what we've done, uh, according to Petraeus. That's clearly the implication. He also described taking out Soleimani in terms of its importance, Leslie. I mean, it's impossible to overstate the significance of the attack that takes out Qasem Soleimani and the number two militia leader uh, in Iraq as well, who also never dared to set foot in Iraq during the surge after we missed him and he escaped. So this is bigger than bin Laden. It's bigger than Baghdadi. This is the the equivalent in U.S. terms of the CIA director, CENTCOM commander, JSOC commander, and presidential envoy for the region for Iran, the most powerful figure in Iran for the solidification of the Shia crescent uh, and also the operational commander of the uh, actions that they were pursuing. That big. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Cliff May, president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Cliff, thanks for joining us. It's good to be with you. Do you agree with General Petraeus's assessment about the importance of this strike against Soleimani? Well, I do. I, I mean, two quick points. I'll make one is one that and these are questions one should ask. Was it was it justified? I don't think any question that it was justified. Qasem Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans the maiming of many more, and hundreds of thousands of Syrians and others. He is responsible for terrorism acts around the world, from Argentina to Nigeria to Thailand to France, and plots in the United States, which happily were foiled. So it was absolutely justified as, as to whether it's wise, meaning whether it's strategic. I think there, General Petraeus makes a very important point. The point is that it was necessary at some point, it seems to me, certainly, to reestablish deterrence, which was no longer there. And w- w- just with respect to some of the um, hysterics from the left about World War III and about uh, reinstituting the draft and millions of soldiers and this and that, uh, you could just give us an, a, a bit of an assessment and insight on what the capacity to do some of those things is with uh, our military guys operating joysticks from sheds in New Mexico as opposed to <laughs> having boots on the ground. Yeah, that, no, that's exactly right. We have, we have, we have. There's no reason. There's no interest. Uh, it, it makes it would make no sense. I, I'm quite confident. We don't want to occupy Tehran. We don't want to take over that country. I, we don't want to be the. We want the Iranians to liberate themselves. They want to do so from this despicable regime. We've had. Um, there have been protests that have broken out in hundreds of cities. I'm sure there's a. There, there are differences with country. I'm not sure they can do it. It's this regime that we that, 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 that we oppose and clipping their wings, hurting their power. That we may want to do. We don't want them to have, we listen, it, it, this should be easy for people to understand. The, the ultimate goal of this regime for 40 years has been stated plainly. It is chant mosques every Friday night 
um, by clerics who are loyal to this regime. It chant is death to America. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the intention. They have not had the capability. Uh, they've done us quite a bit of damage, but they haven't. How do they get the capability of nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to targets anywhere on Earth through the use of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles? That would be very useful if they want to match their intentions. So we don't want them to have that. They can remain a weak nation. We can we can hit continue to them economically. They're just not a powerful nation economically. They're much better now than they were before President um, uh, Trump took office. He took a very different view of this than did his predecessor, President Obama. President Obama thought the experiment that he could appease them, that he could buy them off, that he could show them respect give them power, give them money, pallets of cash on airplanes, billions of dollars in trade, uh, and tell them that they could share the neighborhood, quote-unquote, with Saudi Arabia. And he thought, that would be enough for them. They'll accept that. They'll be happy with that. And they weren't. One illustration that occurs to me all the time is in 2015, the the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was concluded. Early following year, just months later, what happens? They uh, capture a na- two naval vessels of ours. They take the sailors. They hold them hostage. They publicly humiliate them. Right. Eventually, they give them back, and John Kerry says, "Thank you, mm-hmm. thank you, mm-hmm. thank you." That's that's what they want. When they when you'll often hear what they say is they want to end American arrogance. What they mean is Americans should know their place. They should. Submit. Uh, th- this is an this is an imperialist regime. It's trying to reestablish in the 20th century a great Islamic empire that they would control, one that would be dominant, one that would put the Crusaders and the Zionists and other infidels and the Muslim heretics in as they in their place. That's what they're about. This is not something. And again, the experiment was tried. President Obama to say, "Isn't there going along coexist?" treat each other well, and they said no very clearly. One other thing General Petraeus said on Face the Nation was, you know, he's basically saying, now I want to know what's next, what's the Trump administration's next decision after this, and he suggested that a smart decision would be to open up diplomatic channels now. Now that uh, they know that uh, where the line is and yeah, that, that you can test uh, or push President Trump only so far, now it would behoove President Trump to lead the move to open dip- diplomatic uh, channels and uh, try to negotiate a, a, a de-escalation. Well, I, I disagree, but it's not true that we haven't had diplomatic channels all along. Um, there's a, a, an Iranian ambassador in New York to the to the UN. We have a, a, an interest section at the Swiss embassy in Tehran. The Europeans talk to them and have relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, the Iraqis, of course, uh, do as as well, um, because the Iraqis, as you as you know, have been trying and may succeed in taking control fully. But but making uh, the first but ma- making making the first overture maybe is what he was referencing. Well, uh, listen, it's worth considering. I'm not sure what that overture would be. You said, but uh, and, and and I think Mike Pompeo has said many times, we're willing to sit down and talk with you. We're willing to negotiate with you. We're, but it's got to be, we need real realistic negotiations. We're not going to pay a price to have you come to the table or to send uh, Foreign Minister Javad Zarif to Vienna to take dinner uh, at a fancy restaurant with our Secretary of State. That's not how it works, but we'll sit down and talk anytime. I think he can, he can reiterate that. 
but this, but I don't, I don't see that that would be a, 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 anything very new. We're not going to apologize uh, in advance in order to get that. All right. He is Cliff May, president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Cliff, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So, police chases cause crime, and dollar stores cause bad diets. That's the uh, latest. Uh, these are the latest stories, sort of, of the post hoc ergo propter hoc variety. Wet sidewalks cause rain. How civic leaders and public policy advocates have it exactly wrong. Take you to Atlanta, Georgia, where the police chief there, Erica Shields, told her staff on Friday the entire department would have a zero chase policy effective immediately. She said the policy will remain in place for the department until more policy decisions have been made. And uh, this comes after a couple of high speed chases uh, in Atlanta that ended uh, in tragedy, deadly in nature. Uh, in early December, there was a traffic stop that turned into a high speed chase that ended in a multi-car collision. Uh, two people died in the accident at the end of the chase. And there was another incident in September as well. Here's the interesting thing, though. Um, about what the police chief said. She acknowledged in her decision, an email about her decision, that it won't be popular and, quote, more disconcerting to me personally is that this decision may drive crime up. Well, if the decision may drive crime up, then why are you making it? In Chicago, where I hail, it's the same sort of thing. It's a little bit different because uh, the Chicago police have embraced the Obama era consent decree, even after it was rescinded by President Trump's Department of Justice, uh, at which at which uh, disincentivizes police from doing stops. Which also increases crime or reduces the prospects for interdicting crime. So why would you do it? It's not a constitutional issue. It's a policies and procedures issue at the local level. Why would you do it? Because we're playing race identity, well, playing identity politics generally, race specifically when it comes to policing urban centers. And it's leaving those neighborhoods and communities less safe, which necessarily includes the significant minority populations in communities like Chicago or Atlanta. I was interested, uh, Brandon Tatum is a former Tucson police officer who came to some uh, fanfare a couple of years ago when he was uh, uh, stationed to uh, provide essentially security, to be present as a Tucson police officer at a Trump rally there. And what he observed, what he observed there uh, at the Trump rally back in Tucson a couple of years back. And I have to be honest, I felt very uncomfortable there. 
I mean, there was a lot of police officers there or whatever, but I personally, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like at any moment with the climate of these protesters, this wasn't the people that was involved in Trump's rally. It was these protesters that at any moment I could get sucker punched by somebody because they're just outrageously screaming and yelling and not really saying anything but hateful slurs, calling them a racist, calling people that were involved racists and haters. And the funny thing is these people are the most hateful, evil people that I've ever seen. I could not believe what I saw. And now it's difficult to believe that the, the sort of same Black Lives Matter crew and their strategic allies are driving police departments to make policy changes they know will increase the incidence of crime. Uh, Tatum, fast forward, he's leading the Blexit movement, one of the co-founders of the Blexit movement, blacks leaving the Democratic Party, not a police officer anymore. He sat down with uh, Dave Rubin for his eponymously named Rubin Report, talked about his uh, perceptions about what police did before he became a police officer and how the scales fell from his eyes. This is, this is, this is my whole thing about this protesting and this taking a knee on the flag. For all you people who just seem to not understand, let me clarify. Oh, that's not it. That that was uh, another comment he made about uh, NFL protesters. But he, he just talked about in the uh, Rubin interview how different he thought policing was uh, prior to becoming a police officer. And then after he uh, got the call and went through the academy and got all the training, the understanding he gained about the difficult job police officers have to do. And he talked specifically about his first arrest and uh, how real it was. All of a sudden, this is real. You know, I have somebody's freedom in my hands to some extent. And I also uh, am exposed physically uh, and uh, responsible for protecting myself in a what could potentially turn out to be a dangerous situation. And it gave him new perspective a broader perspective, three-dimensional perspective that uh, you don't see from those who just uh, continue to beat the drum that the police is are racist as an institution. They're irredeemable. They're unreformable. And as we talked about on Friday with Chris Rufo, some of these departments should be abolished altogether. And now you got police departments in places like Atlanta and Chicago with cops on their hind, uh, you know, back on their their hind legs. It's not a good situation, not if you're interested in public safety. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I talked about uh, one of the two things I set up last segment, uh, the idea that police chases in Atlanta cause crime. In fact, the lack of them, according to the police chief who made the decision, more likely to result in an increase in crime. The other specious line of argumentation from uh, left-wing advocates is that dollar stores are negatively impacting the diets of poor residents in the neighborhoods in which they're located. A uh, good piece from the City Journal by uh, our friend Steve Malanga, senior editor there. About 20 years ago, academic researchers began producing, uh, began describing, I should say, poor urban neighborhoods without supermarkets as food deserts. Of course, we've heard this term. 
And uh, so this this was uh, this gave rise to, hey, you know, we've got to get supermarkets in some of these uh, difficult neighborhoods, uh, whether it's whether it's uh, the need for uh, local units of government to subsidize them or whatever, so that there's equity when it comes to access to quality food. Uh, The uh, result, hundreds of new stores open around the country. Now, community health com- health uh, outcomes haven't changed significantly, and the same activists who complain about food deserts say they know why. The culprits are the dollar discount stores in poor neighborhoods that drive out supermarkets and sell junk food, according to them. Uh, however, research suggests that supermarkets isn't the problem, let alone the popularity of discount stores. Nevertheless, in Oklahoma City, in Tulsa, in Fort Worth, in Birmingham, in DeKalb County, Georgia, Restrictions have been placed on dollar stores and other communities are considering similar restrictions. The advocacy groups, again, saying they you know, like uh, currency exchanges or payday loan stores or liquor stores. These uh, businesses are saturating poor neighborhoods, exploiting them effectively with cheap, overprocessed foods, undercutting other retailers, lowering the quality of offerings in poorer communities. Um, and uh, they specifically target. Uh, the giant Dollar Tree and Dollar General stores. They sustain poverty, say these left-wing advocates, by making neighborhoods seem rundown. It's a recipe for locking in poverty rather than reducing it. Uh, one uh, think tank, left-wing think tank uh, activist said, Center for Science and the Public Interest is the left-wing think tank, and that's what one of their representatives told the Washington Post last year. Uh, but as Malenga digs into the research, he finds that uh, they're ignoring the fact that the retailers are expanding in neighborhoods that want them. Also, what's actually driving the growth of the stores is affluent households. Uh, That's according to Nielsen, uh, who told the New York Times Magazine in a story entitled The Dollar Store Economy, before the stores became the uh, target of the left-wing activists. The research also published in a paper by... uh, in a paper in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, finds uh, three economists charting purchases in 10,000 households located in former food deserts where new supermarkets have since opened. They found that people didn't buy healthier food when they started shopping at a new local supermarket. From the paper, we can statistically conclude that the effect on healthy eating from opening new supermarkets was negligible at best. In other words, the food desert narrative, uh, dollar stores uh, reducing uh, healthier options is just incorrect. Uh, as Malenga concludes, more likely the issue is combating the ills uh, to, to improve people's diets and combating the ills of unhealthy eating is education. Even like Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign that she tried to, right? It's encouraging kids to eat better and parents to uh, encourage their kids to eat better and provide an example themselves. But as Malenga writes, that's not something that generates sensational headlines. Uh, it makes a lot more sense, however, than banning these stores that are desired in these neighborhoods and have customers that uh, that are benefited from the purchasing power that these stores provide. Right. There's a, a problem that these stores are solving in these neighborhoods. But this is not the point of the left. It's always to use these individuals as mascots for their power gambits. It's not to actually serve their interests. 
because to do that would require actual look at the evidence and connecting the dots between inputs and outputs. This is not unusual. A couple of years ago, two professors from San Diego State University claimed that farmers markets in urban areas uh, weed uh, are, are white spaces. They're effectively white spaces and they create an oppressive environment in urban centers. So now, I mean, this is two years ago. So, so on the one hand, the dollar stores that make uh, everyday goods more accessible economically to lower income families, they're bad. They're keeping people down. On the other hand, if you have somebody have a uh, open a, a farmer's market with fresh produce and the like, healthier options, that's uh, oppression. Those are white spaces. These two academics, and I use that term loosely, uh, in, uh, released uh, this book called Just Green Enough, claiming there is a correlation between the whiteness of farmers' markets and gentrification. Farmers' markets are often white spaces where the food consumption habits of white people are normalized. So I don't, I don't know what white people's uh, food consumption is. I know what the incidence of obesity is across all racial demographics in this country, and it's going up at about a 45-degree angle. But these uh, geology professors, no less, claimed 44% of San Diego's farmers markets cater to households from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, which raises property values and displaces low-income residents and people of color. So try to follow this logic, right? You can't have farmers markets. You can't improve the neighborhood because it pushes out low-income residents and people of color. And you can't have dollar stores, uh, in place of supermarkets or farmers markets, as the case may be, because that gives the appearance that the neighborhood is run down. And so supermarkets providing healthier options won't locate there. So you have that problem. It's, it's almost like it's almost like these left wing activists don't want poor people to eat good, bad or indifferent options. It's just remarkable. The silliness of it all. Uh, This is how the left operates. It's another example. Other people are just means to their political power ends. They are very cavalier with the lives and livelihoods of people who are not them. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And let's end on a positive note, uh, talking about uh, things actually improving. All the dire predictions and the doom and gloom that's associated with so much of our political conversation. Well, John Gabriel, who's the editor-in-chief over at ricochet.com, has a good piece. Your life is already better in 2020 than it was in 2010. Significantly better. And the state of play for humanity is significantly better. So be encouraged. Uh, Believe it or not, things have been darn good this past decade, and they're on track to get even better in the next 10 years. And the good news is, despite the chicken littles running around uh, trying to... uh, to distribute fear for the purposes of 
uh, electoral ambitions, in service of their electoral ambitions. Despite that, uh, the uh, survey out uh, the end of 2019, finding three-quarters of Americans feel pretty good about where the economy is, and they're pretty optimistic about where it's going. And they should be because, particularly in the last three years under President Trump, uh, wages are rising, household incomes are rising, uh, tight job market, 60% bump in the uh, Dow since he was elected. So that's good news for people's 401ks. But even bigger than that, because I know as Americans, we are other regarding, we're taught to be servant leaders, concerned for our fellow man. Some data over the last 10 years. Global poverty, global poverty has plummeted from about 35 percent in 1990 to less than 10 percent today. Now, of course, that's over 30 years, not just the last 10, but the decline continues. And that's good news. Uh, Actually, it means the U.N. goal to end extreme poverty by 2030 is actually ahead of schedule. And uh, that's capitalism and the wealth that it produces, the innovative spirit of the individual that is the proximate cause of that. In 1990, child mortality, since 1990, I should say, child mortality has fallen by 60%. Life expectancy has soared worldwide. CO2 emissions, carbon emissions, have climbed by 12% since 2005 in the United States. Uh, over the past 10 years, the number of U.S. troops deployed abroad has dropped 42%. Unemployment has fallen from 9 to 3.6%, the lowest level in 50 years. And uh, the lowest level ever recorded for African-Americans, Hispanics and people with disabilities. Lowest level of unemployment ever. GDP up by 40 percent over the past decade. Median household income up 7 percent. And uh, Matt Ridley over the spectator predict uh, predicts that by 2030, we're going to see less poverty, less child mortality, less land devoted to agriculture in the world. It'll be more tigers, whales, forests, nature reserves. The global political future may be uncertain, but the environmental and technological trends are pretty clear and pointing in the right direction. So not as all not all is lost, including humanity. Take heed. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Fox. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.